0: When I fall, I got parachutes. 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 What you gonna say? What you gonna do? What you gonna say? Is what they say true. And all these questions, I make sure I am still on top. And all these questions, I make sure this train is hard to stop. No matter what I say or do. No matter the song or two, it's me you cannot drop. I'm in a parachute, up in the sky. I- I'm in a parachute, I'm Die. Parachute, I'm Die. When I fall, I got parachute. Politicize every song I sing, tell you about our reality. You're living in a virtual reality, you're sucking on the tit that feeds you lies. Getting screwed by our system of ties to our demise. We are blamed, why blame us? That's insane. All we know is pain. Control us for 300 years. Our epitome appears in a machine that broke us. Made us get out of focus. you told us, stop that hocus pocus. Look what we had. Our culture was just a fair. What they didn't still do is sad. It makes me mad. Why be racist? It's made us faceless. Made us into your slaves. Land slaves for your wage. In this first world country, you're the entire world. Repeat and recycle. Put more money in guns, we make war to be free, we make war to be free. Are we? Really? Giving him a all, giving him a all, gotta stand cause I'm giving him a all.
1: Good morning, when welcome about to about Wake the I F Up passion. on UMFM 101.5. I we are Thursdays passion. 11 to 11.30. My name is Karan and I use the pronouns he, him. And today on our show I have a very special friend of mine whose identity I will not reveal. But let's just call my friend Will. For some reason, is that okay, Will?
2: That's totally fine.
1: So Will is a healthcare worker, and um, we're gonna be discussing some healthcare policies, the politics behind it all, and what it's like to be a healthcare worker. That's that's primarily why I don't want Will to disclose his identity. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for being here today, Will. It's a pleasure. UMFM 101.5 broadcasts at 1,200 watts from the University of Manitoba campuses that are located on the stolen lands of Anishinaabeg, Nehiawak, Cree, oji Dakota, and Dene Peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. I respect the treaties that were made on these territories. I acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past and those that are still ongoing in the present. I acknowledge my privilege as a settler on this land who still benefits from the ongoing violence towards indigenous people and i dedicate myself to move forward in partnership with indigenous communities in a spirit of decolonization and collaboration so thanks so much for coming today will i was wondering if we can just dive right into the politics of healthcare and talk about where manitoba is today uh, without being partisan, but just just, you know, analyzing the politics and the policies that have brought us to where we are today.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I think it starts and stems primarily back in the days when the NDP was in power. So. The NDP commissioned a report um, from a doctor um, from out east named Dr. Peachy, and he pretty much wrote up this report that outlined some of the changes that uh, he thought would be beneficial to the WRHA and the structuring of Winnipeg's actual healthcare system. So when the NDP were ousted out of power by the election and then the PCs came in, Brian Pallister kind of utilized this report that Dr. Peachy had penned to form a basis of how he was going to restructure the WRHA and use that as a basis for his kind of ideology and where all this background information was coming from. Mm -hmm. So again, this kind of created an issue because the NDP was kind of used as a scapegoat throughout all these changes because the PCs could kind of say the NDP's commissioned this, we're following their kind of wishes Mm -hmm. in Restructuring the WRHA and um, how we're gonna change uh mm, right. hospital organization and the whole emergency room closures and everything that came right. along with that.
1: Right. So there have been a lot of closures and you know, we're we're seeing a lot of anger being projected onto the progressive conservatives, rightfully so, by many healthcare workers, by many people who do access health care in, in a system that is designed to provide healthcare for everyone. Right. We're seeing we're seeing the anger pouring out. And um, however, it's a bit shocking that while the PCs have been under fire for many funding cuts, you know, they've been making cuts to education, many public services, indigenous services and healthcare. They're still going to be in power. So I think that it's good to kind of talk about how w- what their policies are doing to present day Manitobans and what that looks like on the front lines as a healthcare worker to you
2: sure yeah and i think it's just not even healthcare workers that are experiencing the effects of these closures and everything so communities are actually losing their primary care centers for a lot of a lot of areas of the city. So it started back when Misericordia's urgent care center was outright shuttered. So that closed. Um, and then the next phase of the health care or healing our health system as the PCs have labeled it. Right. The next phase included the closure of uh, Victoria's emergency room into an urgent care room. So the southern end of the city actually lost its emergency room as well. Right. And then moving into phase two, uh, there was the closure of emergency rooms at Concordia Hospital and Seven Oaks General Hospital into urgent care centers. So basically, those changes were monumental. Uh, A restructuring like this hasn't happened um, for a long time in, in Manitoba's history. And so this is a very abrupt and sudden change. And that was part of the reason why it was so... Uh, Traumatic for a lot of people. It Mm -hmm. was rushed. It was um, not maybe done with the best interests of healthcare workers in mind. And uh, I think a lot of that comes from, you know, these. Government officials, you know, not consulting with healthcare workers and frontline people who are, you know, on the front lines every day working with patients um, and trying to just do their best to make sure that patients are receiving, you know, safe, compassionate, and, you know, overall just fulfilling care, right. um, getting the care that they need. So,
1: right. So, would all of these overhauls that the PCs tried to do to our healthcare system, would they be blaming all of it on the report that was commissioned?
2: I think a lot of it was, you know, hey, we're basing this off of this report. That was by the way commissioned by the NDP. Right, right. And so fast forward a little bit to when this when these changes were starting to come into play, we we've seen a change midway of the health ministers. So I think mm-hmm. originally it was Kelvin Gertzen who had started these changes and got the ball rolling on the healing our health system campaign and the portfolio actually switched to Cameron Friesen, who was previously the finance minister.
1: Right. Which confuses me a bit because finance does not scream the optimal person to fix our healthcare system.
2: Right. Yeah. And I think that that might might have been a little bit of an issue in the decisions being made for these types of monumental changes to a healthcare system. Contrast that with Janice Philpott, who was our federal health minister under Justin Trudeau's Liberals. Um, she's actually a physician. So right. having that lens to look through as a minister in charge of a portfolio, I think can be very beneficial. That's not me saying that, you know, if I am a minister of, let's say, ecology and forestry and natural resources, mm-hmm. I don't have any background in that. But that doesn't mean that I can't consult people who do work right. in that field. And and I mean, there must have been consultations done with higher levels um, of administration in the WHA. But I don't think there was consultation with frontline staff at least in the initial phase of the of the plan so of there's an example of that with the ad that the manitoba government um produced um that shows <laughs> right. actually three women wearing face masks and right. taking selfies in scrubs right and i think that just shows the the tone deafness of of uh, leadership in a time of such adversity when nurses are working um, crazy amount of mm-hmm. overtime, you know, wait times are skyrocketing. We're at a time where we have the worst wait times in the mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. And when we're we're seeing ads like this from the government, that it's very offensive. Um, a lot of my colleagues were astounded that this was the way they were being represented. It's a sexist representation of nurses Definitely. in the workplace. It, it's just a, a kind of a false representation of what nursing is, and the way they're using this is is not proper to advertise the profession of exactly.
1: Nursing. It was also very racist because it was three white women, and nursing has always been presented to the world very in a very sexist fashion. Mm-hmm. So that didn't come as a surprise. What did come as a surprise to many people was that the face of a lot of frontline healthcare workers is not white skin mm-hmm. in Manitoba. Yeah. In a province where a lot of immigrants, new Canadians who are, you know, happy to be a part of such a great healthcare network or what, you know, what used to be a very good healthcare system, th- they're not being accurately represented by ads like that and you know to go back to what you were talking about consulting communities and listening to the people who are maybe not experts in this but are a part of this you know are a part of the community they dedicate their entire lives to providing providing such optimal care to other Mm. Manitobans and other people who live in Manitoba Mm. you know does the Concordia ER Shut down, but then reopen. Uh, that that entire mess right. come into picture with the same kind of issue. I think
2: so. Yeah. So as you said, yeah, we may not have uh, frontline healthcare workers may not have um, the means to fully express ideas at a policy level, at a systemic, uh, more structural level. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't think a lot of people are concerning themselves with the structural factors of healthcare right. because you know we're doing our jobs, we're working on the front line, and we're focusing on patient care. So. What ended up happening was Dr. Peachy was actually brought back in by the progressive conservative government under Brian Pallister. Okay, And Dr. Peachy was enlisted to come back to Manitoba and kind of give a little bit of insight on how the... Changes were going, and what was happening. Mm-hmm. So, representation from each hospital in the WRHA and some other community sites and personal care homes were present at a meeting with Dr. Peachy, and the nurses and other healthcare workers were given the opportunity to voice some concerns and um, kind of just just get a more cohesive idea of how these uh, changes were affecting uh, frontline healthcare workers. And I think that was very important for the PCs to do that, to see, Mm -hmm. you know, let's get a benchmark here of what is our new baseline? How are people dealing with this? Uh, What kind of stresses are these changes bringing? Mm -hmm. And I think what they ended up seeing was that these changes were really hard on a lot of people. Um, A lot of people were leaving their jobs. A lot of people were switching into different careers. A lot of nurses were leaving nursing because it was just getting too stressful. And what I think that shows is that, you know, if this consultation would have happened previously to the plan to close all of these emergency rooms into urgent care centers or outright close them altogether, this could have been maybe avoided because they were right. s- they were seeing, you know, that there was already these long-lasting issues with staffing and overtime being worked. And there, were, there could have been things to mitigate that and kind of ease into these changes if, if they're necessary. So basically what ended up happening after that was, again, Dr. Peachy came out saying some things to the media that weren't necessarily all factual, um, Mm -hmm. saying that a lot of nurses were agreeing with the changes and that wasn't the case. And the Concordia emergency room was slated to close. People were finding new jobs. People were leaving that area of work. And the decision was reversed. And it came out that Concordia was going to be staying open as an urgent care. So that came as a shock to many people because they were expecting, you know, I'm not going to have a job. I need to find something else. I need to look for other things and quickly, too, because this, this closure is coming very fast. And so... A complete 360. We're now staying open as an urgent care, and all of a sudden, what's what's next? You know, right what's next for right because so many
1: Accordia, people have yeah. already left, and mm-hmm. so so it's just in shambles.
2: Right. So then, this this you know speeding up of this process yet yeah, too is okay. Now we're converting the emergency into an urgent care sooner than was planned, mm. and then we're also going to convert Seven Oaks General Hospital to an urgent care, which was all along the plan, but again that that. Uh, that closure and conversion got moved up. Right. And so that created another uh, another time of confusion and stress for nurses and their families. And it was right. it was a very tasking time for a lot of people.
1: Right. Which which brings me to another point is the PCs. If, if they get reelected, they promise to fix the healthcare, And mm. and they've been, you know, bringing these attack ads on where talking about how the NDP wait times used to be horrific. And now the wait times have improved. And all of that so it kind of brings me to two points really that i want to discuss with you who knows about these things that is there any truth to the fact that you know healthcare has been ameliorated by better wait times like or shorter wait times and because you know this has only been done because of emergency rooms and urgent care rooms Mm -hmm. and that brings me to my second question how do you feel it, 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 is, it, is it responsible that we're leaving it up to the citizenry to decide what is urgent and what is emergent? Right,
2: yeah. Yeah, and that's a big thing too. So to touch on your first point, I think that the PC's touting that this is actually decreasing wait times and that we're improving our wait times. Yes, part of it is true. Some wait times are improving, but the the fact of the matter is the latest numbers that just came out are showing that all but two sites in the WRHA have actually uh, increased their wait times. So right. that's, that's longer waits in the waiting room and longer waits to see a physician or a nurse practitioner. So that is not entirely true. Um, we're not seeing that improvement as much as we thought we would. And then to touch on your second point, yeah, a lot of that is stemming from this this whole, we're putting the onus on people in the community to decide, you know, is my condition acute enough to go to an emergency room or mm-hmm. should I go to an urgent care room? And I think I don't want to infantilize the human population in the city of course by not. saying, you know, no one can decide uh, how serious their condition is. But a lot of the people don't know what is going on in their bodies. And right. that's the same thing for me. Even though I work in healthcare, if I have a pain in my chest or a little uh, twinge of pain somewhere in my body, yeah, I could think that it was a heart attack if it was in my chest. So right. I would end up going to an emergency room or maybe that twinge was just something that I pulled in a rib muscle or something like that. Right. And so let's say I go to an urgent care room with uh, chest pain and because I think it's just a, oh, it's just a pulled muscle or something like that. Right. So I'll go to an urgent care room and it ends up being a heart attack. Okay. So an urgent care is staffed completely to deal with that type of thing. However, um, it is staffed less so than an an emergency room. Right. um, Because the expectation of an urgent care center is that the acuity of the patients is going to be lower. So when we're expecting this lower acuity of patients, we're not expecting someone to walk in with a heart attack. right? Um, and when that does happen, you know, resources are pulled to that person because they require more intensive care from all levels of staffing, right? From mm-hmm. the physician to the nurses through to support staff. Mm-hmm. And again, that is pulling uh, resources away from the rest of the patients who are, who are going there for appropriate treatment concerns. But the person who came in with a heart attack didn't think that their condition was going to lead to this. Right? right. It's never at fault of the person for going to the wrong place. Of course. yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it just it just complicates things that much more. And we're seeing all these ads. Where should I go? Doctor, urgent care or emergency. And they're saying, you know, if it's life threatening, call 911. But there there's a lot of things that could be life threatening that you, that we're taught to think are just nothing or it'll pass tomorrow, or maybe I'll just go and see my doctor. And I don't think that's the most appropriate
1: thing to do. Right. And then to think that this, to quote you, the onus is now being put on the people who have to determine how sick they are to then choose what place they should be directed to or like what place they should just go to. But I can imagine that the nurses and the other healthcare workers who are a part of this decision-making process now also I, I can't imagine that they don't take these things home with them at night, you know, if, if someone is working on the front lines and, you know, is unable to properly give care to a patient because of politics now, they, they're short staffed, they don't have the equipment to provide the care they were once able to provide a person and, and you, something happens, something devastating happens to the patient. I can't imagine that the 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 kind of emotional work that's being put in by healthcare workers is being accounted for. for. Sure. Would you have something to say on on yeah, the lines of that?
2: For sure and this comes into play when we're talking about the whole process of devaluing work that is seen as traditionally feminine. The nursing profession as a whole has been dominated by females in the past and there comes in with a whole host of problems of the devaluing of women's work and seeing as emotional labor is just seen as an expected outcome of being a woman in the workforce. So again, a high degree of emotional labor is performed and required to be a nurse. You know, dealing with patients on a daily basis, you have to be able to relate to patients' emotional needs and supply some type of emotion to every person you encounter in, in that day and on that shift. You're going to interact with someone differently who is a palliative care patient, who is needing certain attention, and you're going to ask, you're going to react different to a person who is just given birth and right. be excited for them. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different dynamics that you have to fit into to be a nurse. And that is so tasking on a person because you're not just performing a monotonous job anymore. You're kind of performing an emotion in every different scenario when you're going into work. And so... That in com- in combination with this, the recent math crisis, I'm sure you're familiar with. Of course, the Winnipeg is being gripped by right now is this 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 drug problem, and again, there's there's no real solutions to it as of right now with the current Pallister government um, that are being forwarded and um, being being put to use under this government. So nurses and healthcare workers are constantly being exposed to workplace violence and it's a real issue. And that is also really tasking on nurses and frontline healthcare workers because it's not easy to be going into work and wondering if you're gonna get spit on, hit on, um, called a racial slur mm-hmm. um, or verbally assaulted in any way. It's not mm-hmm. easy to go into work and think, you know, what's gonna happen today? Am I gonna be safe today? Right. And so I think another really hot button issue this election is going to be legislation for workplace violence and protecting our healthcare workers. I know some other places have these laws in place that are relatively new and saying, you know, protect our healthcare workers against violence. Violence shouldn't be part of a job. There's been numerous studies that are that are uh, that have been put out that say, you know, nurses are one of the top professions that are going to experience violence or likely to experience violence in their in their day to day work, sometimes even more than police officers. So, yeah. So it's just it's just a bunch of things that are kind of culminating in this huge um, emotional strain on nurses that are that that really it's really hard to deal with. And I commend all my colleagues for going in every day and just trying to keep this up and keep uh, doing their job as best as they can. And so what ends up happening is, you know, this 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 concept of burnout is, is really another hot button issue in healthcare, And we're seeing this every day, um, you know, nurses being tired. Um, you know, I experience this on a on a day to day basis as well, you know, thinking, hey, this is a hard shift, uh, but I got to get through it. And, you know, we're kind of trying to find a way through the violence and find a way through being short staffed on certain days. And sadly, a part of that is becoming acclimatized to it and thinking that it's just part of the job when it's when it really shouldn't be right. You know, everybody deserves to be protected from violence when they're working. And so I think that this burnout is in a cyclic relationship as well with the jeopardization of patient care. So everybody who works in healthcare wants to be accountable and wants to be um, a respectable employee and wants to feel like they're fulfilling the needs of their patients and the patient's families. And when you don't feel like you're doing that, that can lead to you feeling feeling burnt out as well, because you're not feeling like you're fulfilling your job. You're not feeling like you're doing enough. And mm-hmm. it just keeps on culminating in right. this. And... It's, In this, it's it's a reciprocal relationship, and it just it just ends up being hard to get over, and there's there has to be an endpoint. But
1: the but question is, is, how do we do that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there's no way that the that any healthcare worker ever gets compensated enough for the kind of emotional <laughs> labor they go through, to yeah. say the very least. Yeah, yeah. And kind of going off of the fair compensation thing, do you think that there's any Policies or any like uh, promises that have been made this election that might that might actually for once put healthcare workers and our, our health care community and their grievances and their needs on the front line of, of this election.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, both parties, both the major parties, I should say, I guess, NDP have been very vocal about their plans on healthcare reform. And the PCs, surprisingly, have also forwarded a lot of ideas on how they're going to make healthcare better in the province. So essentially, what PCs are saying for this election is that they're going to hire 200 more nurses, as well as invest uh, $2 billion as a guarantee into the Healthcare uh, system, as well as rebuilding the St Boniface uh, Hospital emergency room, and on top of that, hiring back eighty rural paramedics as well. And again, I don't want to sound very partisan at all, but the thing that happened during this this the past couple years with the PC government is that um, they're they're not. They're not focusing on the right things per se. So you know, a lot of nurses were actually lost in these processes. So hiring back 200 nurses is maybe keeping it at baseline to what right. it was before they right. uh, came into power. They're looking towards privatization of a lot of Manitoba's healthcare services, such as an example of uh, lifelight air ambulance services. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of right. staff were laid off in that in that case. And that's worrisome as well because mm-hmm. they're looking into other things such as privatization of diagnostic imaging procedures such as C T scanning, MRI scanning, X rays. And that's that's not somewhere I think a lot of the population wants to go, with socialization of medicine being a, a quite a quite a proud piece of, of Manitoba's healthcare system as Canada and Canada's as a whole. Right, right. So yeah, there's just there's just a lot of things that when push comes to shove and the PCs are seeing that healthcare is a very personal issue to a lot of Manitobans. I think they're trying to backtrack and overcompensate for something that they know maybe wasn't the greatest idea. A lot of nurses were cut. Um, a lot of aides did lose their job, and um, paramedic stations were closed in rural Manitoba. So saying that we're just going to backtrack and kind of redo is is maybe not the most transparent thing to do because right. we're not seeing behind the scenes what happened mm-hmm. to the frontline healthcare workers right. that that were cut and, and all that.
1: What do you think of the policies or promises put forth by the NDP? candidates then?
2: Right. So the NDP are working towards a more holistic view, I I think, of healthcare reform. So one of their most recent press releases uh, stated that they were actually going to look into legislation to ban mandatory overtime for nurses. And I right. Think that's something that is super important to address those burnout issues that nurses are experiencing on the front line. It's going to try and address those staffing issues that many nurses are concerned with today, you know, because... Being a nurse, you can go into work, work your eight-hour shift and not know if you're going to get to go home at the end of that eight-hour shift because if you're short-staffed on the next shift, nurses are deemed an essential service as they are and they would be mandated or you know forced to stay uh, for that second shift. So, so looking into a ban of mandatory overtime for nurses, I think, is a very equitable and respectable proposition by the NDP. And I think that's going to capture the attention of a lot of people because I think that's super important to make sure that nurses feel like they're being heard in, in these situations. The NDP are also looking to hire 500 more nurses. And they are looking to reopen the emergency rooms at Concordia and Seven Oaks General Hospital. Right. Um, and I think that would help kind of alleviate more of the staffing concerns, as I said before, because emergency room is allocated more staffing just simply because of the acuity of patients that are going to walk in. Right. I, I'm not I'm not saying that the acuity of patients would immediately rise again at Concordia and Seven Oaks if they reopened an emergency room, but the staff would just be better equipped because they are an emergency room and they have the means and the resources to deal with things that are going to be walking in. And i just like to add in too, Red River College recently experienced a cut of their nursing program, right. which eliminated 75 seats from their nursing their bachelor of nursing program and that did occur under the PC government and so saying that you're going to hire 200 more nurses is difficult if we are only producing so much new nurses right. for our healthcare system and so that's something that again is just a little bit of a backsided promise because it's just you know there there was there was a cut to that academic programming and um, if we're not going to be producing nurses and we're not going to have any incentive for nurses to stay here due to this mandatory overtime and due to the burnout that they're experiencing mm-hmm. um, from the staffing levels. There's there's really no guarantee that nurses are going to be able to be retained in the province. And I think of re- retention of nurses and making sure they're respected in the workplace and making sure that nurses have their voices heard in healthcare processes and in the changes is so important just to revitalize the healthcare system and to boost confidence that nurses are be able to provide the care that they know they can and are trained to do.
1: So you've mentioned a lot about how this affects nurses and other healthcare workers in terms of burnout and, and, you know, these greater policies that do crack down upon every, every healthcare worker. And, you know, on our show, we really try and understand community perspectives from real community members. So I also wanted to talk about how how do you face these issues like do you do you think that you know it has gotten a little out of hand in terms of hours or maybe no hours either you have a lot of work or you have no work or Mm -hmm. you know how does this burnout affect you do you do you get the adequate support that you need and rightfully deserve and just talk to that effect a little bit more.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I initially, um, I was working at a uh, site in the WRHA and uh, yeah, totally... Many hours were worked a lot of times, and being a student at the same time can be a little bit difficult for sure. I think I've had a lot of struggles with, you know, trying to balance my work life with my student life. As usually people are working in a healthcare career and not in school at the same time, right. so I found that to be a little bit of a struggle, and especially, you know, keeping up with my classes and then, um, you know, being mandated for those shifts to stay an extra eight hours into the night and then have to come back to school the next day or have an entire weekend where I was just working, you know, 24 hours out of the weekend or right. something like that. So that that happened in the time when I had a position uh, within the WRHA and then I was actually affected by the cuts. Um, my position was deleted. Um, and then so I went from having sometimes 88 hours a week to none in mm-hmm. the following six days or something like that. So it was a quite a weird struggle that I had to deal with because um, I went from having, you know, guaranteed income because I knew I was going to get those shifts because there was a lot of needs. And then going down to where they cut so much staff, um, there was not a need for health uh, healthcare workers such as myself in those times because of the positions being deleted and kind of downscaled a lot. So then it was a struggle to get shifts. And mm-hmm. so it was a pretty tumultuous time where I was trying to, you know, make money for school and kind of support myself, um, right. pay rent and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was a bit difficult. Um, But in terms of support, I think, you know, healthcare workers are a very distinct breed of people. Um, Mm -hmm. We're all very uh, supportive of each other. And I think that, you know, every time I would go into work, there was always, you know people asking, you know, how are you doing? How's school going? So it was a a little bit of a reprieve for me to go into work sometimes and get that support that I wasn't getting in certain other areas of life. Um, And so I think work does a lot of things, especially in healthcare, to create a community in your workplace itself. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is very much so fostered just on the type of people that are working in healthcare environments. And I think that... Everybody's going to care to some degree. And so I found that very supportive.
1: Right. Did you find any maybe advantages or disadvantages of doing, you know, being a frontline he- healthcare care worker at the same time as being a student at all?
2: Yeah, and that's something interesting, and interesting that you asked that because yeah, everybody that I worked with um, was kind of ready in their careers, and nurses have their degrees and they're they're working—that's their full-time job—and so it was a little bit different for me to be a, a full-time student as well as a healthcare worker on the on the front lines of healthcare. So I think, you know, taking my classes at school, I've done a lot of courses in sociology and things like that that have really given me this great lens to kind of view my work and the situation of healthcare workers in the WRHA as well as, you know, in in my own workplace. And it gave me that lens to kind of critically analyze what was actually happening in the healthcare field today uh, due to these cuts and just kind of seeing, you know, structural factors that are influencing uh, healthcare workers, support that healthcare workers are getting, even union involvement in work. And so that was something new to me too, being part of a union and having that support was something that I really cherished to to get into early. And, um, you know, just seeing the dynamics of union labor uh, organization play out on a actual scale. So it was mm-hmm. instead of seeing that in a classroom I got to see it, you know, firsthand and be involved in that. And I think it was really it's it's been really beneficial for me to to have that background and the the literacy knowledge to view my experience in healthcare a little bit more critically, just kind of become more involved in that way, yeah.
1: Right. And and that's so interesting to me because, you know, this entire episode I feel like you've been screaming for all the healthcare workers that listen to us listen to us listen to us and just hearing your personal experience makes me wonder whether or not we're doing enough to you know I mean there's this discourse of oh we should privatize healthcare versus we should like leave it the way it is mm-hmm. which is an attractive feature et cetera et cetera because it's good for the economy it's good for citizenry patients who 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 want to access the healthcare but are we putting this discourse around healthcare workers? Yeah. You know? And and now it it is really making me wonder because you're listening to the experience that you went through. I don't know if enough of that is being done. And you've been saying that this entire episode, but you know, it's it's clear now that we're not listening to the people who are who are, who are doing this sort of work?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of the times, healthcare workers' experiences are overlooked sometimes. And I think that, you know, our healthcare system is great here. You know, you're going to get that care that you require no matter what. Like, healthcare workers are going to work through whatever kind of situations we're put through, um, whether that be short staffing, long hours, you know, on the 15th hour of your shift, you're still going to receive that compassionate care because the people who work in healthcare, are you know striving to provide that best care and yeah you you hear that question you know who's caring for our care providers right and that's that's something that's really interesting in today's age especially under pallister's government and so yeah i encourage uh voters to think healthcare voting on september 10th yeah keep us in mind uh we're doing our best but yeah
1: thanks so much for taking the time to share your story it was my pleasure thank you very much for having me see you next week
0: can give you a surprise, bad and good And in the hood, the pressure is high I understand the pressure you had Man, you was our dad Lost a child, I can't imagine Left a wife, bills were racking Four daughters, a mother and a brother We still love you and still get blue But I know how you would want us It's hard, it still haunts us I stay strong, not cause of me I stay strong for those who love me. I'll never commit suicide, even if I wanna die. Till I'm old in the line of ice and snow. I know where I will go. I will thrive, I will strive. Most importantly, I will survive.